Revelation chapter 3, for the past few weeks we've been preaching through these churches in the uh, first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And we have, our desire has been to just pick up on a theme and examine it. Uh, I understand that uh, these churches might be more than merely uh, churches uh, that were literal. I understand they were literal. There might be something more to that, but I understand they are literal bodies that existed at that time. And so there's a lot of veins of thought you could go in. There's a lot of things you could say about them. But we have sought to understand what God's message was to that local body uh, at that time. What was going on in them. It's interesting to note that all of these letters are different. And you say, preacher, why is that interesting? Well, because all these churches were different. And you say, well, preacher, why is that interesting? Well, because it lets me know God speaks to us where we're at. Amen. Uh, God doesn't just give a a one-size-fits-all message in the Word of God to a specific uh, people, but rather He speaks to our situations. Now let me be clear in what I'm saying. Uh, The gospel is the same for everybody. Amen? We are all sinners, but what I mean to say is that in our daily spiritual walk, God speaks to us about what we're going through. And I'm thankful for that. Hey, listen, if I had to lean on what God... There's a lot of folks out here better than me and uh, there's things need to be said to me by the Lord that don't have to be said to them. Amen. I'd, I'd dry up on the vine if I was just depending on what God might need to say to that person. Uh, by the same token, there might be things that uh, He would say to other folks that He would not say to me and how we'd uh, run our head into the wall in discouragement trying to fix a problem that isn't there. I'm saying God speaks to us distinctly about our situation. I'm thankful for that. Revelation chapter 3, we come to the sixth church in this series of seven churches. That means if you have enjoyed this, I'm sorry to tell you it'll be over soon. And if you've hated it, I've got good news for you. We've only got one more church that we're going to look at after this. So a little something for everybody, Brother Charlie, this morning. Uh, But I want us to spend a few moments in the Word of God, and I want us to look at the letter to the church at Philadelphia. Now this isn't Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but rather it's Philadelphia in Asia Minor. I got an amen when I said that. Somebody don't like Philadelphia in here. Was that my wife? I don't know what that means. You're from Philly. I don't know what that means, Fred. Somebody's going to take a lap when we say something bad about Philly. I don't know what's about to happen in here. But uh, rather it's Philadelphia in Asia Minor. So let's begin reading in the Word of God this morning. We'll begin at verse number 7, read down to verse number 13. The Word of God says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience." I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast, uh, hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. 
He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. What a blessing to be in your house. Now take these next few moments and take your word, Lord, and use them for your glory. I pray that your word would be sounded forth faithfully and help me to do my part in being obedient unto you. Help me not to say anything that should not be said, but Lord, help me to be bold to say all that which might bring you glory. I pray that each heart would be open to the truth of thy word. Lord, this is of no avail. We can have an open door, but if we don't have an open heart, nothing's going to happen. Help us to have an open heart to your truth, to your word this morning, that you might speak to us, that you might draw us closer unto thee. I pray if there's one lost this morning, that they would see that, Lord, uh, there's a door of service that you've opened for us, but Lord, there's a door of salvation you've opened to uh, through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the door, and by Him we can go in and out and find pasture. In other words, that through Him we can get into the family of God, we can know You and be saved by Your grace. I pray You'd teach us and show us that truth, and if there's one lost, especially show them that Christ is the answer. Answer, and we'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, I love you and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get into the theme of the message this morning, I want to read to you a little bit of information about the city of Philadelphia. As we said, we're not talking about Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but rather the ancient city in the region of Asia Minor. It was not far from the other cities that are mentioned in these letters. And uh, we know a little bit about where it is and what it was like and that informs us as we study the Bible. The city of Philadelphia, today known as Al-Sahir, was located about 30 miles southeast of Sardis, leading to Laodicea. The name Philadelphia means brotherly love, and the city was built by Italus Philadelphus, whose name it bore. Bounded by Mount Timulus, it shared the rich and fertile soil which characterized Sardis. Owing to the volcanic nature of the soil, the city became famous for the cultivation of fine grapes. However, it was in a precariously dangerous position because that entire section of Asia Minor was subject to frequent earth tremors and occasional earthquakes. In fact, there was one in 17 BC that destroyed much of that region. And Philadelphia suffered severely from the earthquake of the first century that completely demolished Sardis. Toward the end of the first uh, of the century, the city had been completely rebuilt, and a testimony for Jesus Christ had been established there. Philadelphia was situated in a strategic place on the main route of the imperial post from Rome to the east, and thus was called the gateway to the east. If you were going to go east and trade in that day, you were probably going to go through Philadelphia to get there. It was also called Little Athens because of the many pagan temples in the city. So you see where we're getting at. Here's a place where lots of lost folks live. Lots of lost folks pass through there. And it was a place where God had put a church and put His people. This church was certainly located in a place of tremendous opportunity. As God says later in the text, God had given them an open door. Now, as I said earlier, as we've studied through these, we've sought to pick up on a theme. Uh, each one of them, for instance, when we preached last week and uh, the church at Sardis, we talked about the fact that they had a name that they lived, but in actuality, the Bible says spiritually, they were dead. And as we read through the text this morning uh, for the church at Philadelphia, there are two thoughts that jump out to me. The first that I find is down in verse number 11. I just want you to notice this verse as a little introduction. Verse 11, the Lord says this, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take 
thy crown. Uh, This morning, I want us to think, number one, of this thought. Don't lose your crown. Now, when we talk about a crown, we're not talking about our salvation. Praise the Lord that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, which is uh, from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You're not holding on to your salvation. uh, Your salvation's holding on to you. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, But the crown is associated as a reward with our service. It's associated with service. In other words, when a person is faithful to the Lord, uh, the Bible teaches us, and we'll say a word about it here in a moment, that they are given a crown. And there are five of them mentioned in the Bible. Somebody's probably thinking, well, preacher, that's good and everything, but why would I want a crown? Well, in the book of Revelation, we're told uh, that the Lord Jesus, when He comes back, He's wearing many crowns. When you look a little earlier in the book of Revelation, you say, where'd those crowns come from that he's wearing? The Bible tells us that the saints of God in heaven, in the presence of the Lord, take those crowns and cast them at his feet. Now, why are they doing that? They're giving back to the Lord a representation of the life they live for him. In other words, they don't want to be empty-handed before the Lord. It's not that you need a crown sitting on your head. It's that you want something to be able to give back unto him. So these rewards are meaningful. It's not just a piece of jewelry. It's not just a piece of art. Uh, It's not even simply a a measure of our achievement, but rather it's a way for us to tell the Lord that everything we have, it all is owed to Him. It all belongs unto Him. And the church at Philadelphia was in danger of losing their crown. Notice three things very quickly in this charge to the church. And Normally we take the first verse in this letter, but I want you to notice this verse with me and I see three things immediately. Number one, I notice the Lord reminds them that there is a return at hand. He says in verse 11, Behold, I come quickly. Can I say to you this morning, the Lord Jesus is coming back for the church. He is coming back. We think we have all the time in the world and I think that is natural until people maybe reach a place where death sort of uh, charges, intrudes in on their mind. Most people live naturally thinking they don't know how many more days they got. They figure they at least got one or two more. We assume that we're always going to have more time. Uh, Very often as young people we are particularly afflicted with this because we think uh, that we're in good health, that everything is is fine and we're not going to go and meet the Lord anytime soon. The first funeral, this is how the Lord taught me this, the first funeral I ever preached in my life was of a 75 day old infant. 75 days old. That baby had done nothing wrong. It wasn't all that baby's fault. The reason that baby passed away uh, at death, listen to me this morning, is no respecter of persons. But can I say this to you? You don't have to meet death to meet the Lord. There's an entire generation for saved people that are going to be uh, caught up. The Bible uses, uh, the Bible describes it for us. We use the word rapture as a way of describing it. The Bible says uh, that uh, all the dead in Christ shall rise. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air. When the Lord Jesus comes back, He's coming back for those that are saved, that know the Lord is their Savior, and He's going to rapture them out. You say, preacher, when's that going to happen? The Bible tells us no man knows the day or the hour. Where Where does God tell us? What does God tell us? He says, I come quickly. In other words, it could be at any moment. Any moment. For 2,000 years, listen, preachers have been saying it can be in the next five minutes. And one of these days when a preacher says that, it's going to be in the next five minutes. Uh, It could be me. It could be us this morning. That uh, What I'm saying, not that what the preacher says is predictive, but rather that one of these days he's returning and it could be at any moment. Listen, if we're going to do something for Jesus, we better do it now because He's coming soon. 
If we're going to live for Christ, we better do it now because we don't know how many more days that we have to live. And you say, preacher, I'm healthy, I feel good, I'm young, i got my life in front of me. Those first three things may or may not be true, but that last one certainly could not be true. You might be meeting the Lord sooner than you think. We see a return at hand. Number two, he says this, hold that fast which thou hast. We see there is a responsibility at hand. Uh, The Lord says there's things I've entrusted to you, and if you're not careful, you'll let them slip away. Uh, certainly in your life and mine, God has bestowed upon us rich blessings. Man, we've, we've got a New Testament church here we can worship in. We've got the Word of God that we can read. We've got the prayer calls that we can pray in. But you know, there are a lot of Christians walking around in the world today uh, that don't that, they don't share in the benefit of a New Testament church. They never read the Word of God. They don't go in the prayer closet. They've let those things in their life slip away. By the same token, we have opportunities in front of us. You do and I do, all of us do, to serve the Lord and to do something meaningful for Him. Those opportunities won't be there uh, forever. And then there are many that because of sin and disobedience allow the rich blessings of God in their life uh, to be uh, subjected under the will of Satan and not used mightily in their life. I'm saying this, we have a responsibility this morning. When you got born again, hey listen, I understand somebody might have told you that all getting saved is is getting a ticket to heaven. But if they did, they lied to you. It's true that God makes us a place and a home in heaven. It's true we're assured that we're going to be in His presence. But when you got saved, you got given new life. You became a new creature in Christ Jesus. You became a part of this body of the New Testament church. And with that comes responsibilities. We have responsibilities. We have to live for the Lord. We have to do something with this life and not merely let it slip away. But then I notice this, there is a risk at hand. He says this, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast. Then he says this, That no man take thy crown. Now again, time would fail us to say all that could be said about these crowns in the Word of God. But I'm going to give you one example. And again, there's five of them distinctly mentioned in the Word of God. But I'll just mention one of them. Because the testimony of the man uh, who was resting confident that he'd received this one is is so meaningful. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, you've read this before. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is coming to the close of his life and he's writing to the young Timothy, the young pastor uh, that he has taken under his wing and loved like a son. And he says this to Timothy, for I am now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. He's saying he's getting ready to die. He knows Nero is very soon going to ask for his head and his life. Paul then says this, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love His appearing. Now notice Paul does not say here that the righteousness of Christ is conditional. He doesn't say that my salvation is dependent on this, but he says this crown of righteousness. This reward that's given for a life that has been righteously lived. He uses the word henceforth there. That means because of this. Because of what? Well, because he had fought a good fight. Because he had finished his course. Meaning not that he was dying, but that he had kept serving the Lord until the end of his life. Because he had kept the faith. And then he even gives another one down at the close of the verse. He says that the Lord will give not to me only, but unto all them also that love He is appearing. You say, preacher, what does all this mean? Well, it means this. If you don't fight a good fight, if you don't keep the faith, if you don't finish your course in faithfulness, if you don't love His appearing and look and long for His appearing, you have no reason to expect a crown of righteousness as Paul did. 
So in other words, this whole thing, and there, there, there's a, there's a nasty ideology in Christianity today. There's, there's a big old ten dollar word for it that I don't necessarily expect you to be familiar with. It's called antinomianism. And it's the idea that because we're saved by God's grace, we can live any old way that we want. You know what I've found? Listen, there's no saved antinomians. You say, how do you know that, preacher? Because once you get born again, you realize this, the Lord did not give you a free pass to sin. He gave you freedom from sin. Now we all sin. Every one of us does. We all do wrong. We all disobey the Lord. But God didn't save you unto license. He saved you unto liberty. He saved you so that you could live for Christ Jesus. He didn't save you so you could be under the yoke of the of sin, but rather so that you could be uh, under the fellowship of the Spirit of God. But this idea that a person gets saved, they can live any old way they want. It comes from the idea, and it's often used it used sort of uh, of, of mockingly about those of us, and I'm one of them this morning, that believe when a person gets saved, they never lose their salvation. Uh, listen, you say, well, preacher, why would you ever serve God uh, if, if, if you could never lose your salvation? I never served God to try to get my salvation. I never thought me serving God could get me saved. <laughs> when I came to the Lord, I, I called upon Him in faith and asked Him in His blood to save me by His grace. I never thought I was getting to heaven by my good works. So just because I know that me not doing good works won't keep me out of heaven. That doesn't mean I'm not going to serve the Lord. Of course I will. Of course I should. Of course you should. Because God has saved us by His grace. Listen, but let me say in addition to that, there's real risks. There's real risks in not serving the Lord. Maybe this is a whole other message that I don't have time for, but let me just say, there's really a risk. There's things that we risk losing if we don't serve the Lord. So the church at Philadelphia is encouraged to not lose their crown. There are real risks to us not serving the Lord. There is a second theme that is found in our passage this morning. And I want you to notice it with me. In verse number 8, the Lord says this, I know thy works. Then He makes this statement, Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut. I think that there are a lot of applications we could make of that. Certainly we could say He holds the door of of salvation, as one commentator said. I'd say this, He don't just hold the keys to the door, He is the door. He he don't just unlock it and let you in. You're either going to come through Him unto God, or you're not going to come at all. He said, no man cometh unto the Father but by Me. Certainly it's true that the door of safety is held uh, by Him. Certainly He keeps us safe and watches over us. But I don't think that's what the Lord's talking about here. I think rather He's talking about the door to service. And when we often say, I've got an open door before me, what we mean is we have a great opportunity and potential to do something meaningful. And I think that's how the Lord's using this phrase this morning. I think He's saying, I've given you an opportunity. Don't waste it. Don't squander it. Do something with the open door that I've given in front of you. Can I exhort you for just a moment and say we've all been given open doors. Open doors. I don't have time to get into it. I, I share a little story in Senior Saints on Friday morning about a door that God opened that I didn't walk through. Uh, an opportunity to witness to someone that I had and it was as plain as day. Well, I'll tell you this much about it. I, I was down in the Home Depot and one of these guys came up that that takes the the surveys. I don't know if you've ever been in there when they do this. You, you can't get away. If you hang around there long enough, one of them will land on you. <laughs> And uh, he came up and he wanted to take a, a survey and he wanted to ask me about my water quality. And I won't go into everything of the conversation, but he said, uh, sir, you know, how's your water quality at home? And I just sort of brushed him off and I was in a hurry and I was trying to get by, but I told him in Senior Saints how much better would it have been if this preacher had been Christian enough that, that, that afternoon to have looked at him and said, 
Oh, friend, the water that I have is better than anything that you'll ever find. He said, do you drink that from a bottle or do you drink it from, 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 and I said, well, I drink my water from the tap. How much better would it have been if I said, no, I drink it from a well. <laughs> a well of everlasting water that's springing up. What I'm saying is this, I could have used that as an opportunity to witness to this man. To my eternal shame, I let that opportunity slip by. But listen, we all have open doors right in front of us to serve the Lord and to witness for Him. And so the two questions I would ask you this morning as we look at this passage is this. What about the open door and what's trying to take you crown? These two things are deeply connected. The crown is the product of a life that's lived for the Lord Jesus and the open door is the opportunity to live that life. And so these two concepts are married deeply with each other. What does the Lord say to this church regarding this truth? Well, notice a few things with me. Look back in verse number 7. We've noted when we've studied this that every one of these letters begins with a description of the Lord Jesus. Now, if you were to go to chapter 1, you would find a more comprehensive, a more complete description of it. And each of the letters then sort of pick up on a theme from that description and amplify it, explode it, emphasize it. They, they show more richly that description of Him. So if you combine all of them, it sounds a lot like the description given in chapter 1. Well, what's the description given of the Lord in this particular letter? Verse 7, the Bible says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I don't know what you noticed there. I noticed a statement about the Lord and His character, but then he starts talking about keys. He starts talking about doors. And I would say this, if we're going to uh, make our heart ready to live for the Lord, we need to understand who the overseer of the door is. In other words, he reminds them who it is that holds the key and who it is that's in control of everything. First thing that he mentions is his divinity. He says, he that is holy, he that is true. Jesus Christ presented himself to the church at Philadelphia as he that is holy. Now this is the same thing as declaring that he is God, which of course he is. Holiness is an essential attribute of God. In the Old Testament, Jehovah refers to Himself as the Holy God in Isaiah 40.25. On a number of occasions, He said, I am holy, particularly in the book of Leviticus. Jesus quite naturally assumes this title, and rightly so, for the Bible tells us that He is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Jesus Christ is holy in His character, His words, His actions, and His purposes. As the Holy One, He is uniquely set apart from everything else and nothing can be compared to Him. You notice He said, He that is true. He's saying the genuine article. Amen. In a city where there were all kinds of false gods, Jesus shows up and says, Hey, I'm the real one. I'm the true one. I'm the holy one. I'm not like these graven images. I'm not like these wood and stone idols and these idols made out of precious metal. I'm the real thing right here in front of you. G. Campbell Morgan, Bible teacher, makes a distinction between the idea of holy and true. He says this, that as the holy one, Christ is right in His character. As the true one, He is right in His conduct. He could not be different in His actions from what He is in His attributes. When character is right, listen to this, conduct will be right. Because holiness inherently resides in Him, truth does likewise. Since He is perfect in what He is, He is also perfect in what He does. Now you say, preacher, what has this all got to do with me this morning? Well, I'd say this, if we're going to serve the Lord, we need to understand, number one, who the Lord is. Number two, we need to understand that the Lord is the Lord. 
He is God. The One that has called us to serve Him. The One that has commanded us to serve Him. We all have limitations in life. We all have burdens we wish we didn't have and shortcomings that we wish we could fix. But the Lord of glory, the God that knows all, is the One that's set an open door before us. We need to be reminded if He put the door in front of us, He must believe that by His grace and with His help and strength, we're capable of going through it and serving Him. So He speaks of His divinity. Number two, He speaks of His authority. He says this, He that hath the key of David. This is a reference to Isaiah chapter 22. Now at that time, it was during the reign of Hezekiah, the godly king of Judah. The Assyrian armies of Sennacherib were already on the march against Israel. And the people should have been in a spirit of mourning and repentance. But instead, there was a spirit of sin and careless living. The people said, in fact, in Isaiah 22:13, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. Their leader was a man by the name of Shebna, who was also the treasurer of the palace or the chamberlain over the king's household. He was a frivolous, reckless, and selfish man. Isaiah predicts or prophesies that the Lord will toss him about like a ball into a foreign, wicked land, and there he shall die. But Shebna's position, in other words, that of being the treasurer over the king's household, would be taken by a man by the name of Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Of Eliakim, God said this, And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. So he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. The significance of the key of David is clear. It has to do with the rule over David's wealth and house. We could use this word this morning, authority. What does a key mean? A key means authority. Typically in a place, if a person has the keys, they're the owner. And he reminds them that he is the one that has the key, the authority, the power over all things. Can I remind you that the throne of David will one day be occupied by the Lord Jesus? And that throne, the jurisdiction of it, listen carefully, the the perimeters, the land over which it rules will be the entirety of the earth. In other words, just as the psalmist said, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He reminds them here that He's the one that holds the key. He's the one that has the authority. He's the one that has the resources. We oftentimes say, Preacher, I'd love to serve the Lord. I'd love to do this for God. But I'm afraid I I, I just I, I don't have the resources to do it. How would this happen? How would that happen? Hey, listen, can I remind you this morning who it is that holds the keys? Can I remind you, listen, He holds the keys to the storehouses of God's treasure and provisions and power and authority and the ability to weigh men's hearts and the ability to change men's hearts. If He's asking you to serve Him, He has the means to supply you with everything you need. Then I see not only is His divinity and His authority spoken of, but His sovereignty is spoken of. He says this, He that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. Can I be clear with you this morning? Listen, if there's a, a, a an avenue of service, we'll serve God. And there's been times there's been things I've wanted to do for God, but God wouldn't open the door for it. And you say, well, preacher, how'd that make you feel? Well, I had to be reminded that if I'm really wanting to do it for God and God really doesn't want it done, then if I did it, I wouldn't be doing it for Him anyway. I'd be doing it for me. Uh, oftentimes, uh, when I go to my parents' house and, and go and sit down, me and Mama argue. We'll have an argument every time. And it always starts the same way. It always starts, can I get you something to eat or something to drink? And I'll say, no, Mom, I'm fine. And then, I don't know why, but there's a shelf life of about 35 seconds where she'll say, okay, that's fine. She'll go in the kitchen, she'll come back. Are you sure I can't get you anything to eat or anything to drink? And, no, Mom, I didn't get hungry in that 30 seconds. I'm, I'm fine. 
And then, then about a minute or two later, she'll come back. She'll say, are you sure? I can fix you some chicken and dumplings. Are you sure you don't want... I, I'm, I'm getting ready to fix something for your daddy. Are you sure? I'm, no, mama, I'm okay. And by this time, things start to get tense. You understand? <laughs> uh, you know, I say a lot of that tongue-in-cheek. I appreciate her loving me and wanting to make me feel at home. But <laughs> I say that merely to say this. I'm not sure she thinks I want something to eat. I think it's just she wants to see me eat. When you have babies, you'll know what I'm talking about. There's something gratifying about seeing your babies eat. Uh, you love it. You just love to see them eat. I don't know why. Maybe that's why we're all fat now. But but you just you, you love to see them eat. It's gratifying to see them eat. And you know, at the end of the day, what I'm trying to tell her is I, I'm fine. I'm good. But I think really what it is, she, she's wanting to see me feel at home and feel comforted and nurtured and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, listen, if I ate something, I wouldn't be eating it because I want it. I'd be eating it because she wants me to. There have been times, that's okay, Linda says. You ain't the one who's got to try to keep this slim, petite figure that I've got. Amen? But what I'm saying is there's been times I've wanted to go through a door, I've wanted to do something for God, and God said no. It's not what I want. It's not my will for you. And I've gotten frustrated. And I've said, Lord, but I have a desire to do it. He's had to say this to me. Child, do you want to serve me or do you want to serve your dreams? Do you want to serve me or do you want to serve your dreams? Sometimes we want to serve our dreams. We don't want to serve the Master. Sometimes we want to serve ministry. We don't want to serve the Master. Sometimes we want to serve people we love, but we're really not wanting to serve the Master. I'm saying this, if there's a closed door, no man can open. Can I remind you of this? Hey, listen, if there's an open door, can't nobody shut it. Nobody can stop you and I from serving the Lord. If it's God's will for us to do something for God, though all hell should march against us, cannot stop us from serving Him. He's sovereign this morning. He's in control this morning. He's the one that holds the keys. Can't nobody open it if He don't open it. Can't nobody shut it if He don't shut it. What does He say to the church at Philadelphia? Well, remember, look at verse 8. He says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. Now, it's all good to say, well, preacher, sometimes there's a closed door, and preacher, sometimes there's an open door, and I agree with you about that. But we don't have to wonder about the church of Philadelphia. The Lord says, I've opened the door. Now, what are you going to do with it? In your life and mine, there may be areas where God has shut a door, and we can either sit there and bang on that door and beat our head against it, or we can turn and look for where God has opened a door and seek to walk through it in faith, trusting Him. The church at Philadelphia, God had opened the door for them. God had said, I've made a way for you to serve me, for you to live for me, for you to do for me what you need to do for me. But now, can I remind you, he goes on in just, just about three verses and he says, let no man take thy crown. Let's compare these two ideas for a moment. God says, I've given you opportunity, but there's a possibility you'll squander it if you're not careful. And I thought about this question. How could we lose our crown? Or we might say it this way. How could we miss the open door? I noticed three things in this passage. Notice them with me this morning. In verse number 8, he, he sits before him this open door. And then he gives a description of the church at Philadelphia. He says, for thou hast a little strength. He notices their feebleness. He says, and hast kept my word. He notices their faithfulness. And then he said, and hast not denied my name. He notices their fearlessness. In other words, he says about this little church, I put a door before you and you walk through it. 
He said you were feeble, you had but a little strength. And that doesn't mean that they didn't have much spiritual strength, but it probably means they were not a very large church. Uh, It's interesting, the idea that we have that only big churches can do big things for God. Has it ever dawned on you that every church that might be big today was at one time small? Every work that God has done that today looks vast and impressive was once something that was small that men despised for its smallness. He says at the church at Philadelphia, there ain't many of you, but the ones that there are are trying to do something for me. You know, God can work with smallness, but He cannot work with carnality. Uh, God can work with, with, with a lack of strength. It's, it's, not, it's not a lack of strength uh, that God uh, can't work with. It's people leaning on their own strength that God can't do nothing with. He says about this church, you, you were small, the Lord saw their weakness, but He also saw their willingness. Because of this, He opened doors of opportunity that no power on earth could shut. Listen to this. We want the doors open first. But often He says, no, you be faithful and make the first move and I will open the doors in time. He says, I've opened a door that no man can shut. For thou hast a little strength and hast kept my word and hast not denied my name. In other words, the Lord's saying, I opened this door in response to your faithfulness. This was a small, feeble group of people. They were not in and of themselves impressive, but they were two things. One, they were faithful. He says, you've kept my word. And I say this, if we want to do something for God, we've got to be willing to be people of the book. I like that. The missionary said that the other night, and that stuck with me. People of the book. People of the book. We've got to keep His Word. We've got to study His Word. Everything God does on this earth, He does through His Word. You say, preacher, what about the Holy Spirit? Oh, you mean you mean the Holy Spirit whose sword this is? This is the sword of the Spirit. Everything God does in this world, He don't do it through dreams and visions. He doesn't do it through sensationalism. He doesn't do it through man and machinery. He does it through the power of His Word. Through the power of His Word. As such, they were, they were faithful and then they were fearless. It says, He has not denied my name. They were unashamed of the name of Jesus Christ. For generations in our country, uh, these truths have fell flat with us. And I'll tell you why. Because it's been pretty popular for a while to be a Christian. You could do it. Just about every president that we've had has claimed, you notice I said claimed, to be a Christian. They all have. They've all said, oh yeah, I believe in the Lord. It's been easy. But I'll tell you, we're entering a time, my friend, where it's not going to be as easy to stand up for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to be very, very clear with what I'm about to say. I don't believe it's our responsibility to lobby Washington and be viewed as a voting block. I don't think it's our responsibility to take gun and take bayonet and try to exert the will of the Word of God through violence and through the sword. But you mark her down. There's going to come a time when they're just going to want you to shut up and be quiet about the name of Jesus. And when that time comes, we have a duty-bound scriptural responsibility to be bold in our witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. It matters. The name of Christ matters. You say, well, preacher, they'll be happy if we just talk about God. The Bible doesn't say just God generic. It says Jesus Christ. They were bold. They, in other words, we could say this. They had an open door and they walked through it. Preacher, what could cause me to lose my crown? Well, I would say this, number one, faltering at the door of opportunity. He says the church at Philadelphia, you walked through the door. But you know, had they not been willing to walk through the door, that door would have been meaningless. An open door is pointless if we won't go through it. Some people, they claim they lack opportunity, but really they lack obedience. I'm not trying to be hard-hearted. I'm not trying to be mean this morning. We all have a desire to serve the Lord and do as much as we can. I trust that this morning. You're at the house of God this morning, and you ain't here because you hate Jesus. You're here because you love Jesus. But I'm telling you this morning, we have to be honest with ourselves. 
We say, I want to serve the Lord. I want to do something for God. Well, then when God opens the door, we must be willing to go through and to serve Him. Too often, I know in my life, I've been guilty of wanting to wait until God did things on my terms before I do anything for Him. Lord, I've got this criteria. It's a simple 487 bullet checklist. You get that organized, Lord, and then I'll do what you want me to do. It doesn't work that way, friend. God opens a door. We need to step through it. So we see faltering at the door of opportunity. Then notice verse number 9. The Lord says, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Here in this passage, we see the opposition that was coming against this local church. We see, number one, the satanic nature of the opposition. He calls them the synagogue of Satan. This isn't the first time they've showed up, by the way. Earlier in these letters, uh, there was uh, those that were described as the synagogue of Satan. In other words, the opposition was satanically energized, satanically guided and directed. Can I say to you, listen, the Lord will open a door for you, but the devil's not just going to step aside so you can walk in easily. He will have his opposition there. Notice the strategy of him. It says, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. One of the great problems in the early New Testament church was those that would come in claiming they were Christians and then try to subvert the local church to Old Testament Judaism. And they were a problem. They were a problem everywhere where Paul went. It was they who would always chase him out of town, get mobs riled up against him, would persecute. It was they who had at first commissioned Paul when he was Saul of Tarsus to go and to destroy the witness of Jesus Christ there. And it had not abated. It had not diminished in this time. It's 90 AD at this point. And it had not diminished. They were still trying to destroy the church. And how were they doing it? Listen, they were doing it through deception. Through deception. In other words, the opposition was not outwardly pressing in. It was inwardly tearing apart. The devil, listen, if he cannot block you from going through that door, he'll try to sow division and discord in the body of Christ to prevent a local church. And this is true of your life personally, but it's also true of us as a body, as a church. One of the easiest ways he can hobble a church from doing the will of God is to sow in it the seeds of division and discord. Uh, Listen, you ain't always going to get along with everybody. If you figure out how to, please let me know. I'd love to know how to get along with everybody all the time. You ain't going to get along with everybody all the time. Sometimes people are going to hurt you. Sometimes you're going to hurt other people. But we need to be reminded, listen, that for all of our personal issues we may struggle with, there's an open door in front of us. And we better go on and do something for God while we have the opportunity. I see the strategy. I see the subjugating. In other words, He brings them to heal. He he deals with them of the opposition. He says, Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Now here, He doesn't say they're going to worship them. No, He doesn't say you're going to worship at your feet. He said before your feet. In other words, uh, what He's being reminded here is that one of these days, all of those that have stood in opposition of the Lord are going to be forced to bow the knee before the Lord of glory. The Bible says, it says that every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, one of these days He's going to deal with them. But here's what I'd say this morning. You could falter at the door of opportunity, but you could fold at the difficulty of opposition. This church went on and they kept serving God and they kept doing what was right. But you know the sad truth is a lot of folks let the devil stop them in serving the Lord. A door that no man can shut is meaningless if we allow the enemy to block our way. See, the truth is there's only potency, there's only power, there's only change 
if we go through that door of opportunity that God has given us to serve Him and to live for Him, if we are unwilling to do that, if we allow the enemy to stand and to block our way, and you say, preacher, it's somebody I love, it may be, but that don't mean the devil ain't using them. Preacher, it's somebody that I admire, it may be, but that don't mean it ain't the devil using them. Uh, These people were probably well received in the local church. That's part of the reason God has to warn them is because there's tares among the wheat and and He's trying to get them to understand the the risk that's associated with it. But He says, listen, if they're standing in the way, you need to go around them, you need to go through them, you need to go over them, you need to go under them. But don't let them stop you from serving the Lord. Very often, people that we love dearly will be the greatest impediment in us serving the Lord. They'll think that serving the Lord is too extreme, that there's too many risks. They'll say that it's futile, that it's pointless, that it's impossible. They'll come up with all the reasons why we can't serve God and shouldn't serve God, why we can put it off, why we can wait until tomorrow, why it's not important to do now, why there's other things that we need to do first. But understand that open door before us, that crown that we're vying for, we have this opportunity to get it. And no man should stop us from living for Christ. I, I see the that we could fold at the difficulty of opposition. Look at verse 10. It says this, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Now this is an interesting verse. There is a prophetic truth that is found here. I cannot read this and in honesty tell you that I don't see the tribulation here. Of course I do. And if I do, then I recognize God saying to the church, you're not going to see that hour. Now what it says, and you say, well, preacher, it's just talking about difficulty. I, I don't know. It says which shall come upon all the world. I've had some bad days, but I ain't never had a bad day that it was a bad day all over the whole world. Uh, you say, but preacher, there have been dark days and tragic days in our history. I was thinking about this the other day. You know, there's probably people that are living in the in the deepest jungles. You hear about these tribes like in the Amazon that are indigenous and, and they don't even know what COVID is. They don't even know. If if Dr. Fauci can get there and get them three or four masks to wear each, then then, then maybe they will. But, but you think about it, I mean, where they're at. I, I think about back when the Depression happened. I, I, I've read accounts of people during the Depression that lived through it. And it's funny because if you lived in one of the big cities, then it was it was devastating. It was it was earth shattering. But here around here, I'm talking about out in the country. And I, I know we're in Knoxville, but I'm talking about in Appalachia. There's a lot of people didn't even know there's Depression. There's poor before the stock market crash. There's poor after the stock market crash. It didn't affect them at all. I mean, they undoubtedly there might have been some things far-reaching, but I mean, they didn't even know there was a depression. They didn't know you're supposed to have new shoes every year in the first place. <laughs> they didn't know you're supposed to have anything more than pinto beans and cornbread anyway. And so for them, they didn't even know it. But the Bible says of this time, it's going to be over the face of the whole earth. I think there's a prophetic truth here. And whatever that may do to inform our understanding the rest of this chapter, I think that we cannot dismiss that. I think it's more than just a, a local tribulation and trial that takes place. And this, of course, is in perfect harmony with what the Bible says. In First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 8-10, through 10, Paul says, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. So there's a prophetic truth here. We're not appointed under the day of wrath. But I see there's a practical truth here as well. I don't know if you picked up on this. It's easy to miss it in the overall theme of the rest of the verse. But notice the first phrase. He says, because thou hast kept the word of my patience. 
There are other places where he talks about this. He talks about my faith to one of the churches. He does not say you've kept the word of patience. He says the word of, of my patience. He does not say the word of God's patience. He says the word of my patience. What's the word of his patience? Well, it's the testimony of how he patiently served God even in the face of opposition. Can I read a verse to you? In Hebrews chapter 12, you know this verse. Many of you can quote it with me. Uh, the apostle writes and says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now listen to this verse. For consider Him that endured such contradiction of sinners against Himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. It goes on to say, you've not yet resisted unto blood in striving against sin. What the... Uh, book of Revelation is speaking about when it speaks of my patience. It's talking about the testimony of the patience wherewith Jesus faced the cross of Calvary. He did it. The Bible says, led as a lamb uh, before her uh, shearers is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. So he spake not a word. He went. He didn't try to fight. He didn't try to strive. There was an open door that led to the hill of Calvary and he just went and trusted his heavenly Father. And the Bible tells us that God rose him from the dead, exalted him on high, glorified himself through that whole thing, and he could not have done it had he not been willing to be patient. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He didn't enjoy the cross. He endured the cross. Despising the shame. He didn't desire the shame. He despised the shame. But now he's set down at the right hand of God the Father. So the practical truth here being this, you could miss your, your open door. You could lose your crown by uh, faltering at the door of opportunity, folding at the difficulty of opposition, but also by fainting in the day of tribulation. In other words, in your life and mine, when things get tough, do we give up? Uh, when things get difficult, do we just quit? I promise you this, if you serve God, you'll face opposition. You will. Uh, even if no one ever says a, a bad thing to you, even if no one ever criticizes you, and by the way, if you serve God, people will criticize you. They will say hateful things and hurtful things to you. They will try to destroy you. They will lie about you. They will try to devastate you. They will try to hurt your family. All those things will happen if you serve the Lord. But even if they never did any of those things, the devil himself will try to make your lot, your path, your road as miserable as possible in the best way, most powerful, most effective way that He can. What do we do? We keep on going. We keep on going. We keep on living for Him. Listen, a door that God keeps open is of no use if we faint or give up before we go through it. The Bible says we'll not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. If we faint not. In other words, we can do all the reaping and we can never, or we can do all the sowing and never do any reaping if we faint before that day. Uh, let me just say this, and I'm going to move on. I'm out of time, and, and I need to mention these last verses. But let me just say, I, by God's grace and strength, I've seen God do some things that if I had thrown the towel in, a year in, two years in, three years in, everybody will tell you that, that a pastor's most difficult time is in year two or year three, statistically speaking. We don't have these statistics on independent Baptists because don't none of us like to talk to each other. But the, in Southern Baptists, they say that two years, two years, is the average lifespan of a pastor in a church. There's a reason for that. Year two is difficult. Year three is difficult. 
And I'm not saying pastoring ever comes without it. It's problems. There's always problems. There's always challenges. There's battles we fought over this past year we never thought we'd have to fight. But I'm so glad I didn't throw the towel in when things got tough. I baptized my little boy the other day and some of your children. I'm so glad we didn't give up when things got tough. Hey, every year we've seen God grow our camp and bless our camp and save kids by the grace of God. I'm so glad we didn't give up. Every year, Vacation Bible School, we see God save sinners. Every year we see the gospel go out thousands and thousands of tracks. And I'm, I'm just saying I'm glad I didn't give up. I'm glad you didn't give up. Glad you didn't give up on me. And I'm glad we were pressing on. You know why? Because listen, there's better things on the other side of the door. There's a reason the devil knows he has to get you on this side of the door. If he waits till you get to the other side of the door, he won't be able to get you. You won't regret going through that door. But if he can get you before you ever go through it, before you ever serve God, before you ever step forward in faith, he'll be able to keep you from living for him. In every assembly, there are various forms of evil that can steal our crowns. A cold heart overcame the saints in Ephesus. In Smyrna, the believers were tempted by discouragement through tribulation and poverty. In Pergamos, there were the opposing doctrines of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. In Thyatira, Jezebel held undisputed sway. And Sardis had a name to live by and was dead. The question is, what will you allow to take your crown? What will you allow to take your crown? We could go on and read, and, and, and I, almost, I almost feel like I should, but I know I don't have time. But you can read those last verses where God makes promises to those that overcome. We see the guarantee to the overcomer. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar, He says, in the temple of my God, and He shall go no more out. You know what's interesting? When the Holy Ghost pressed on John's heart to pin this down, there wasn't no temple standing. The Romans had destroyed it in 70 A.D. So what temple was the Lord talking about. He wasn't talking about a physical temple. The Bible tells us that in that endless day when the new Jerusalem sits down on this earth, there'll be no temple at that time because the Lamb Himself will be the light of that city. So what's it talking about? It's talking about their place in the government of God. And here's what it's saying. It's saying He he won't have physical pillars because there won't be a need for any in that day. Won't be no earthquakes like what they had dealt with. Won't be no structure to have to hold up like they had had. But rather the pillars will be those that have been faithful unto Him. In other words, the pillars are the most important part, aren't they? All Listen, the pews are nice, but if the pillars weren't here, we'd all be in a mess. The pulpit is pretty, but if the if the pillar wasn't here, it would all be a mess. In other words, He's saying this, I've guaranteed you a place a place in my kingdom, in my economy, in my government. Then we see the glory to the overcomer. He says that He's going to identify with Him in three ways. One, He says, I'll write upon Him the name of my God will be identified with the holy sovereign God of heaven. In other words, in another place, the Bible says this way, He's not ashamed to call them His people. I'm glad, listen, I, the world may be ashamed of us, but the Lord isn't ashamed of us if we live for Him. He's identified with the holy city. It says, in the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven uh, from my God. The city of Philadelphia uh, bore some bad testimonies, bore some bad things, and bore a rocky history. But the Lord reminds these believers here that that city is not their home. It may be the open door before them, but this world is not their home. God's given them a heavenly city and a heavenly home. They look for a city whose builder and maker is God. It's not made with human hands. But then I notice this, and this is really why I wanted to say it. He says, and I will write upon him my new name. Isn't that interesting? He says, he's going to write the name of God. He says, he's going to write the name of the new Jerusalem. But then he says, I'll write upon him my new name. 
He said, Preacher, what is that new name that Jesus has? Well, the Bible tells us in Revelation 19.12, His eyes were as a flame of fire and on His head were many crowns and He had a name written that no man knew but He Himself. No man knows what that name is. It'll be revealed one day, but we have a little bit of a hint in the Old Testament. You remember the story of Joseph? How that Joseph is sold by his brethren and, and sold into Potiphar's house and how through the wickedness of Potiphar's wife she lies about him. He's thrown into prison and then God exalts him up out of prison and he interprets Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh has a dream that he sees uh, seven uh, skinny cattle and, and seven fat cattle and he sees seven good ears of corn and he sees seven bad ears of corn. And, and God reveals to Joseph that what this is suggesting is there'd be a time of drought and, and a time of, of plenty. There'd be a, a time of blessing and then a time of barrenness. So Joseph is given the administration to prepare the whole land for that. And for seven years they lay everything up in store to get ready for the day when the famine comes. Through this, Joseph not only saves the land of Egypt, he saves the whole world. All the world comes to Egypt's doorstep to buy food to provide for them. I don't know if you, you're picking up what we're throwing down yet, but the whole world's coming to Egypt to the doorstep so that they can worship before Him, so that they can get things from Him, so that they can be provided for. And the Bible tells us that Pharaoh, because of this, he elevates Joseph. He's not in the prison anymore. Now he's second only to Pharaoh himself. The Bible tells us he gives him a ring, gives him a robe, lets him ride in the chariot. And now, listen, the despised and rejected Joseph has become the most powerful and worshipped man in the entire world. He's gone from the prison to the palace. He's gone from being despised to being worshipped. The Bible tells us when that happens, the Pharaoh, Genesis 41-45, Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath-Paneah. He gives him a new name. When Joseph, now he's been exalted, he's been glorified, he's the governor or ruler over the entire world for practical intents and purposes, and he's given a brand new name. Funny sounding name. I don't think you'll find it in the baby book, but you know what it means? It means treasury of the glorious rest. Here's what they were saying. Joseph has conquered. Joseph has won. Joseph has triumphed. He's the one that holds the keys to the treasure. He's the one that has the resource and supply that all the world needs. I'd say this, it'd be pretty good to be buddies with Joseph, wouldn't it, at that time? It's a picture of what the Lord's going to do for Jesus Christ during the millennial kingdom. The whole world that's despised Him and hated Him and rejected Him is going to have to come and worship at His feet in Jerusalem. He's going to be the one that sits on the throne there in Jerusalem. and He'll be given a new name. I'm talking about a millennial name. I'm talking about a name that nobody knows now because He don't identify with it now. But in that day, they'll call Him by a new name. You know why? Because He's the treasury of the glorious rest of God. He's the reason that the whole world is at peace and at rest in that day. The Bible, the Lord says, those that have been faithful unto me, when it wasn't easy, when it wasn't simple, when it wasn't, uh, when it wasn't a, a smooth path, He says, in that day, they'll know that name. And they'll have that name written on them. And when men see them, you know what they'll say? That's one of them that served Him when He wasn't who He is today. When He was nobody, when the world hated Him, when the world despised Him, these are the ones that served Him and loved Him. Now that He's exalted on the throne in Jerusalem, how precious that'll be. I'm saying this. Can I just summarize it? Somebody said, I wish you would. I'm not a prophet, but you didn't say it out loud. You said it in your mind though. He says at the end of this, you'll be on the winning side. On the winning side. 
I'll tell you, a lot of times you've got to fight battles. You've got to claw and kick your way to get through that door that God has opened. Not because God has closed it, but because the enemy's preventing it. But can I remind you, no matter what that entails, we're on the winning side of this thing. We're on the winning side of this thing. So here's your open door. Here's your crown. What are you going to do for it? What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do about it this morning? Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. The altar is already open and you don't have to wait for me to pray. You can come and meet with the Lord in these moments. And I, and I advise you don't wait. I'd advise you go ahead and come on if the Lord's spoken to your heart. If you don't, the devil might bully you into not being obedient unto Him. So if He's spoken to you, why don't you come find a place at this altar? Father, I pray that You'd bless this invitation that Your people would get help from You. Lord, I love You. And I ask it in Jesus' name with our heads bowed.